Welcome to Interactive Stack Brief Podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the AI Act and foundation models. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website Euractive.com. This is Euractive Stack Brief Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rishi Bomansani, Society Lead at the Stanford Center for Research and Foundation Model and Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, and Kevin Kleeman, researcher also at the Stanford Center. Hello, both. Hi. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to have you. Um, so uh, you have recently published a research about uh, foundation models uh, uh, and how they, the existing ones would comply with the AI Act. But before we, we get into that, can you give us an idea of what a foundation model is? This is uh, quite a complex uh, concept that was developed at the Stanford University and was introduced in the AI legislation by the European Parliament. Yes. So uh, foundation models are a concept or a sort of technical paradigm that we have seen in the field of artificial intelligence over the past few years. They are models that require tremendous amounts of data or compute to produce. So these are models like ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion or DALI2, many of the models that have got both the attention of the public and policymakers in the past few years. And these models can be used for a variety of different downstream use cases. So you could use these models to summarize documents or translate between different languages or caption images or for a variety of different purposes. And the reason that they have been of interest in the policy sphere is because they introduce new challenges for thinking about how we should regulate uh, AI systems. In particular, because they can be used for a variety of different use cases, they challenge many of the regulatory frameworks we have that think about sector-specific regulation. And so I think that's what we'll talk about today in relation to foundation models. Exactly. So, um, Kevin, would you like to give us the highlights of uh, your research? Because the the European Parliament has been the uh, EU legislator that has a more advanced, let's say, uh, framework for this sort of models. Uh, I assume you based your assessment uh, on the Parliament text, right? We did, yes. So the Parliament text, which was adopted by the Parliament, uh, a week ago today, on Wednesday the 14th, uh, contains roughly 22 requirements that specifically apply to foundation models. So in our study, we look at 12 of those requirements, and we grade 10 major foundation model providers and their major models on those requirements. And those requirements relate to disclosing information about the data and the computational power that's used to train a model, about the capabilities and limitations of the model, about the ways in which the model is deployed within the European Union and providing relevant documentation for downstream providers. Uh, Overall, our finding is that every major foundation model provider has significant room for improvement. So on our proxy score for compliance with those 12 requirements in the European Parliament's draft version of the AI Act, we find that 
three providers score below 20% on our measure of compliance, six score below 50%, and only one scores above 65%. So overall, we're seeing that providers largely do not comply with those provisions of the draft AI Act. That isn't necessarily surprising as it's not currently legislation, uh, but it does indicate a lack of transparency in the ecosystem that could spell trouble down the road. A couple different areas of our findings that I would highlight would be that model providers inconsistently report information about the energy usage associated with the models or any measures they're taking to mitigate that energy usage, as well as uh, the compute that's used to train their models, whether that is uh, the number and type of semiconductors that are used or the provider of cloud computing services and the like. I would also add that there's not enough information that's disclosed by foundation model providers to comply uh, with the draft AI Act with respect to the risks and the mitigations of those risks posed by the models, as well as uh, the, uh, the evaluation of the model on a wide variety of uh, different topics. And Rishi can maybe talk more about uh, our center's work on the Helm benchmark um, and how there are many, many different types of valuable evaluations that a foundation model provider might conduct that then give the public, academics, and the overall ecosystem relevant information about that model and its performance. That's right. So I think Kevin has summarized the sort of core findings of our work. In particular, on this topic of transparency and evaluation, there's a lot of work to be done in this space. And as Kevin mentioned, both in terms of evaluating capabilities and limitations, but also risks of these models, uh, providers are very inconsistent in sort of specifying what risks are being mitigated, uh, the efficacy of those uh, risk mitigations, and in general, providing adequate testing and evaluation for these work. So at the center, we have done some work on building uh, benchmarks and evaluations, uh, including the Helm benchmark uh, that we have used to evaluate many of these models. But in general, I think the act and visions of broader evaluation, testing, and auditing ecosystem, and in many cases, this evaluation does not yet exist and isn't widely enough adopted, therefore meaning that providers at the moment are not sort of uh, adequately transparent about what these models can and cannot do, and therefore it is unclear uh, to, to scientists and to the broader public you know, where these models should and shouldn't be used. So this is something where in particular we think uh, added emphasis is needed. Right. Uh, can you just give us a snapshot of you know, the, the most uh, famous of these models like OpenAI's, uh, uh, ChatGPT and Google's BARD, where do they stand uh, in, your, uh, in your assessment? So we actually do not assess either ChatGPT or BARD, but we do assess uh, what are widely considered to be the most capable models of both OpenAI and Google. So GPT-4 for OpenAI and for Google Palm 2. And both models perform relatively well on certain requirements and relatively poorly on others. So on requirements related to deployment of the model, such as providing adequate documentation for downstream providers who may build applications on top of those models, they both perform relatively well. On disclosing whether or not the model is generating machine-generated content and maybe any steps that the provider would take to uh, prevent that from happening, they both perform well. Um, 
and on describing the capabilities and limitations of those models, they also perform well. Where they do not perform as well uh, are areas where open source models provi- uh, perform relatively better. So that is in disclosure of any data uh, that the model is used to train on both the sources and whether or not those sources are copyrighted. Uh, Details about the energy requirements in training those models and also the computational power that is leveraged to train those models. And in this case, what I would highlight is that it both uh, Palm 2 from Google and GPT-4 from OpenAI come with extensive technical reports but they speak to a broader broader trend of waning transparency, increased opacity in the space. In particular, both reports very openly disclose that nothing will be sort of disclosed about the compute or energy or data in many forums, as Kevin mentioned. And so I think this is one of the things where I think policy intervention would be particularly timely uh, and, and useful for helping to uh, ensure that we understand how these models are being built especially as they become increasingly uh, resource intensive to produce, uh, because this might have broader implications for which actors have sufficient resources to build these models and broader questions around the concentration of power in this ecosystem. Right. I'd like to go back to what Kevin said about the um, copyrighted training data, because there is a transparency provision about this in the European Parliament's text. is this even possible? Uh, because, I mean, these large language models, they are basically trained by crawling the entire internet. Can uh, providers actually say which data is copyrighted and which is not? Yes. Uh, so the requirement in the Act specifies that providers need to provide a summary of the copyrighted data used in training these models. At the moment, Uh, We haven't really developed, at least uh, openly, uh, tooling that would be be needed to identify copyrighted data at the scale and and sort of clarify what the copyrighted data is. So I think this is a challenging requirement to meet at this moment. Uh, With that said, I do think it is possible for providers to do a great deal more. We do see some of the other providers, you know, have many of the same challenges that they're dealing with data at tremendous scale, but are better able to specify what aspects of that data is copyrighted, because there is available structure here, right? The data comes from a variety of different sources, and we might have understanding of the copyright status of parts of the data or the license status in the case of code or so on. So I do think there is uh, significant room for improvement here. I think a a separate piece that's also relevant is um, you know, when we're talking about copyright here, there are many relevant uh, jurisdictions and copyright law to think about, um, which may all not be uniform, especially across the world. And I think this will also be a separate uh, topic where we need uh, sort of more clarity of, of how these copyright requirements should be understood. I would just add that there are several providers that are doing what seems to be their best to describe openly what data sources they are relying on and what the copyright status of those data sources are. So I would point you to uh, providers such as Eleuther AI or Big Science, uh, scientific collaborative of over a thousand scientists. And they, in the technical papers for their data sets that underlie the models, describe the license status of the various data sources and go into detail about 
what portion of the data set is made up by various data sources. Those are steps towards uh, compliance with the provision, uh, such as in the European Parliament's draft. But as Rishi said, the lack of clarity across different jurisdictions on how copyright law will apply is one of the major barriers. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so when it comes to new uh, rules, uh, there is always some sort of pushback uh, from the industry saying that you know this uh, would uh, kill innovation. At the same time, you're telling me that um, a large part of the industry would not comply with these requirements, which you know would justify making them mandatory rather than voluntary. So to what extent is this argument true that you know regulations such as the AI Act might uh, might put a stop on innovation or at least slow it down? I think there are a few pieces towards answering that question. One part of this is what we did find in our finding in our work is that the across the space of all of the foundation model providers. For every requirement, there are at least one or if not multiple providers that do fairly well on that requirement. So even though no single provider does well on every requirement, it does seem feasible at this moment for all of the providers to improve in terms of their compliance with the act. I think the second point is, of course, the act is not in place and many of these models were trained in the past. And so there was no immediate reason that uh, providers needed to comply with a stated requirement because it, it didn't exist. Uh, at that time and certainly continues to not be in place yet. So I think if providers are you know, aware of these requirements, I think it'll be much easier for many of them to comply with them. I think there are already a number of areas where providers uh, do not comply with the requirements, but it should be fairly straightforward for them to improve in terms of their compliance. I would point to the requirements around disclosing uh, which states the model is uh, which member states of the EU the model is deployed in or describing uh, capabilities and limitations. So I think these are areas where some of the providers are doing very poorly, but it would be fairly straightforward on how to improve in these areas. To the broader question of whether this stifles innovation, as, as some might uh, suggest, I think what we're seeing is that the lack of transparency in this space itself will be a problem. Um, and the act does take uh, you know, important steps towards addressing this. And I think that will be important both for questions of uh, further innovation in uh, the EU and in the world, but also for ensuring that the technology is accountable. And so you know, it is always a standard challenge of balancing uh, innovation and regulation in an effective way. Uh, but I think in many of the places, the act is doing an effective job of striking a, a good balance here for you know, this evolving topic of foundation models. To add to that, I would say that we have to consider what type of innovation we would like to promote. The policy environment that you set determines the direction in which companies will innovate. And so having regulation on the books that says that risks and risk mitigation and evaluations of bias and a wide variety of other factors of potential harms that models might cause will spur innovation in that area. And there are many relevant open questions in that area. How do scientists create models that do not encourage people to do self-harm? How do scientists make models less racist or less homophobic or less transphobic? These are all valid scientific questions that 
regulation that encourages model providers to decrease the potential harms caused by their models would spur on. Right. And I would add to that, that uh, seeing that uh, also in China, there are moves to regulate AI and, and prevent some of uh, potential abuses, it's also a sign that perhaps uh, regulation is not necessarily bad for uh, long-term strategic competitiveness. Um, but going back to the AI Act, um, this is, of course, still a moving target. Uh, we are now moving uh, to the final phase of, of the negotiations at the EU level. What is your message to policymakers? Uh, what can be improved still, and what what should they absolutely keep in the final version? Yeah. So our message to policymakers is that there are three key areas for improvement. One is that some of the requirements in the Parliament's version of the AI Act are underspecified in how they should be interpreted. So. To say that a foundation model provider should give a description of the capabilities and limitations of the foundation model, that's an incomplete requirement unless you specify that a sufficient description includes specific examples and quantitative measures of capabilities and limitations, for example. Another area where the AI Act could be improved is that there are other, other considerations around foundation models that are insufficiently addressed. So. For instance, the usage patterns of the models, having some sense of how frequently foundation models are used to give medical advice, prepare legal documents or other risky use cases would help us hold providers to account. And finally, I would say that enforcement is somewhat underdeveloped in the AI Act, that our experience in grading these models shows that you need a good amount of resources and a lot of technical expertise to assess whether or not a model provider or a model is compliant with a specific provision. And so making sure that regulators have ample resources should be a priority as well. To add to that, I think one final piece I'd like to highlight here is that the ways in which these models are deployed are quite varied in this ecosystem. There are some you know, developers and providers who are providing models through an open source pattern of release, whereas there are others that are providing models in a more uh, closed fashion where they are internally building products on top of it, uh, but the model is not widely available to the public. And the Act's requirements are somewhat uh, uneven in how they can be addressed by different uh, providers taking different release strategies. So to be a bit more concrete here, some of the requirements around how the model is deployed and what are, are requirements uh, for providers to satisfy in relation to deployment are fairly straightforward for those who are, are most, more closed in the deployment uh, strategy, but they would be quite challenging for open source providers to comply with these requirements. And so I think thinking about how open source should be treated uh, in the context of the Act, where in many other parts of the AI Act, there are specific carve-outs for open source is also an important uh, place where the EU policymakers can think about uh, whether open source should be treated in the same way as the uh, all of the other entities that need to be compliant with the Act. Thanks, Rishi. Um, a final point I wanted to touch upon uh, regards the so-called Brussels effect. I think we could probably do an entire podcast about this, um, but I just wanted to get your views from 
the other side of the pond on uh, whether the AI Act has the actual potential to become the world's uh, benchmark in terms of AI regulation, as a lot of uh, a lot of people in the in Brussels uh, seem to think, or if there might be uh, ways for uh, companies to to try to circle around that. So, for example, uh, offering different products outside of Europe or even uh, withdrawing from the EU market altogether. Right. So I think there are two aspects of the Brussels effect. First is how will providers change their conduct? In particular, will regulations in the EU cause providers to have a single product offering that they offer across both the EU, but also beyond the EU. And I think on this topic right now, in some of our discussions with providers and what we are seeing here, uh, we currently believe that providers will uh, sort of trend in this direction. They will uh, sort of standardize their offerings, leading to this sort of effect where the regulation within the EU has a broader impact on the deployment of this technology across the world. I think that is the aspect of the Brussels effect where we're still relatively uncertain, though, though we have seen this in the past with GDPR and other uh, regulation in the EU. And then the second aspect of this, as you mentioned, is for the policymaker side, will policymakers uh, in other jurisdictions take uh, inspiration from the EU uh, both in in drafting legislation, but also in seeing how uh, the AI Act f- uh, affects uh, sort of foundation model providers once um, approved. I think on this topic, we are seeing policymakers in the United States and the UK that we are talking to uh, regularly mention the AI Act and directly uh, use it as a sort of reference for how they are thinking about uh, you know, creating uh, legislation in these uh, areas. So my expectation is that there will be significant, um, uh, you know, reference to the AI Act and, and the way it addresses foundation model providers, but also its broader approach towards risk uh, in, in the broader uh, AI Act. So I think this is something where I, I see a significant spillover from the EU to, um, to other jurisdictions. I agree wholeheartedly with what Rishi said. I would only add that uh, it certainly will have an impact on the way that international organizations govern AI. Both the UN and the World Bank have been closely watching the development of the EU AI Act um, and have been to some extent involved in those negotiations as stakeholders. And that there are other efforts to regulate AI around the world, whether that's in the US with the NIST, NIST AI risk management framework or China's uh, cyberspace administration's regulation on generative AI. There are many different efforts, but uh, we view the EA, EU AI Act as one of the more comprehensive efforts, which means that if companies want to do business in the EU, just with just as with GDPR, whether that's a company in the US or a company in North Africa or a company in Latin America, then they need to conform their practices to the AI Act uh, and that tends to have spillover where once you develop those practices, uh, it's not impossible to apply them domestically or in other jurisdictions as well. 
Rishi Bomasani is society lead and Kevin Kleiman is researcher at the Stanford Center for Research on Foundation Model and Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, publish on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. I'm Yerruka Pertuzzi, and thank you for listening. Bye.